Good morning. morning. A couple weeks ago, I was having a conversation with some of the folks uh, at my secular job about uh, something that Facebook had been doing and how disappointed uh, we all were about it. And uh, someone said, you're preaching to the choir. And then they laughed and they said, ha see what I did there? And I said, yeah, I preach to the choir every week. (laughs) See, that phrase kind of has a new meaning for me now because we don't really have a choir and we all are the choir, really. And so, yeah, every week I preach to the choir. So that, that phrase, that was that an idiom, Melissa? Is that what that is? That idiom doesn't make sense for us anymore. So um, that has nothing to do with my sermon. I was just thinking about that as, as we were uh, singing that song. I, I, I love that song. And I love the book of Zephaniah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I do. Uh, there's some really great profitable teachings that we're going to look at today. Today I started something very new uh, in, in my personal life. Um, now I've been here long enough now, and I don't think it's any secret that I like food. Uh, in fact, every time a potluck is announced, no matter the theme, and Dave has pointed this out, that I always pump my fist with joy. <laughs> I like potlucks. By the way, we have a potluck coming up this month, the fourth Sunday, and it's breakfast theme this month. So if you haven't signed up, go ahead and sign up. Uh, I will not be partaking of the breakfast foods, I am sure, um, because today I started a new diet. My breakfast this morning was a green smoothie. Ugh. It was spinach and fruit and almond milk and ice. And you know what? It actually was pretty good. I, was, I, I took my first sip, you know, waiting for the worst. And I was like, hey, this ain't, this ain't half bad. I might drink all the blender. Um, and I did. <laughs> but this is, uh, this is the detox phase of the diet. It's the, the part where you work to remove the things that you like, the things, uh, the bad habits, the things that you crave, um, the things that you really shouldn't be eating. And these are the bad habits that you've established um, throughout your, your bad diet. And then uh, when the, the rest of the diet comes along, you're more receptive to the new diet, to the, to the, the things that you're going to be eating. You begin liking those things that are good for you. Let's be honest. And you start focusing more on those things. You look forward to those, those healthier meals. But the things in the new diet have always been there. They've always been available to me to eat, for me to enjoy. But I, but I like to enjoy the processed, the, the high-calorie, the, the good-tasting food. I, that's what I like. That's the foods that make my taste buds happy, but don't necessarily make my body happy. And isn't that the case with many of the things in our lives? The things that we place value on. What if I told you that the pews that you're sitting on this morning were bought, unbeknownst to us, from a church down in the south where Martin Luther King Jr. preached his very first sermon? They'd be extremely valuable just because of that fact. But we had no idea how valuable they were. And so here we are, we're sitting on them. We have reupholstered them. We've spilled things on them. That's not the case, just so you know. That's, that's not the case. But, but when something is valuable and you don't know it, you tend to take advantage of it or, or squander it away, throw it away. We, we tend to treat things poorly unless we know their value. And we value a lot of things in this world, don't we? Food, 
our cars, our house, our job, the country we live in. We value these things. But we're often more invested emotionally in the things of this world that are not eternal. You know, the things that Jesus said are subject to to thieves, to moths, to rust. The things that will waste away and die when the world does. We tend to be more emotionally invested in those things and less invested in the blessings and gifts that we have in the gospel. The eternal promises and the hope that we have because of Jesus. So the question I'd like you to ponder upon this morning as we go throughout our lesson on the book of Zephaniah, and you can go ahead and turn there, by the way, if you haven't already, but as we study this book together this morning, think about whether or not you underappreciate your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Maybe you don't even know what that means. Maybe you don't know if you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven or not. Now, part of this question is whether or not you neglect God's word. Whether or not you value the word that he has given to us. Think about this. The minor prophets and and other books from the Septuagint, they were a large part of what was being taught in the first century church as it was growing. Of course, the gospel was a very big part of it, a major part, but the minor prophets, the major prophets, Psalms, etc., the the old law, all these things were taught along with the gospel because the gospel was the fulfillment of many of the things that we read in the Old Testament. These books were taught for the same reason that they were originally written, as a warning, as an example to not follow. For those who do not obey God and, and do not seek His righteousness and His kingdom, wrath, judgment, and suffering is waiting for them. You can say that it was the fire and brimstone teaching of the first century churches. But we should not neglect the warnings of the lake of fire, the brimstone, and the wrath, and the punishment that has been promised for those who turn their back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him, as Zephaniah writes in chapter 1, verse 4 through 6. If we neglect, if we neglect what we have as God's children, if we neglect His Word, how can we appreciate what we've been promised? If we neglect talking about the wrath and the punishment and the pain and suffering that's waiting for those who do not obey, how can we appreciate what we have been promised? Now, it's safe to to assume, I think, that, that many of us, myself included, before beginning a study of the Minor Prophets, if I came up to you in the, in the lobby out there and asked you what the theme of Zephaniah or the theme of Nahum was, would you be able to tell me? This is why we're studying these books. Because these books tell us the value of what we have so that we fully appreciate Uh, what we have in the kingdom of God. And if we neglect God's word or if we dismiss it thinking it doesn't apply to us or that's the Old Testament, we're the New Testament church, then we will continue in the error of Israel because they underappreciated what they had. They squandered it and they basically threw it all away. The Son of God who was promised to be brought forth from the remnant of Israel was brought forth. Jesus came from Israel Now, while some believed, others neglected his teachings. Others dismissed him. They beat him and they hung him on a cross. God says here in Zephaniah 1, verses 4 through 6, who he will stretch his hand out against, who his wrath will come out against, Judah, Jerusalem, idolatrous priests, and the non-idolatrous priests. 
and those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. So application number one this morning from Zephaniah. If you are an adopted child of God, are you neglecting anything that you should not be? Are you underappreciating your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven? If you're not yet an adopted child of God, what are you neglecting that is keeping you from the only citizenship that matters? I want you to ponder on these things this morning and and throughout your week as you go into your personal Bible studies. Now, let's get into this book of Zephaniah and the profitable teachings that we can pull from this minor prophet. And first, of course, a little background. So the book was written during the reign of King Josiah between 640 and 609 B.C. And as we read through Zephaniah, or if you haven't yet read through it this afternoon, go go ahead and do that. It only takes a few minutes. But, but I want you to read it. Maybe go home and read it again. But read it as if you were King Josiah. Now, if you don't know who King Josiah was, King Josiah was a young king. He was a good king towards the latter portion of his kingship. But he became king at a very young age of eight years old. And throughout his kingship, throughout his reign, he brought about a lot of reforms to the, to the uh, nation of Israel. And much of that may have been due to the teachings of Zephaniah and his fellow prophets of, of Jeremiah and Habakkuk. Zephaniah... Uh, himself was the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. And as such, he may have been very active and a part of the royal family and present often around the young King Josiah. So it's very possible that the things we read here today were preached to the young king, maybe as a young boy or as a teenager, and very possibly what caused Josiah to... um, do what he does by the time he's 16. So around 16 years old, he began to seek God. And by his 20s, he began destroying the idols in Israel and putting his reforms in place. Now, imagine you're the young king and you hear those things that we just talked about at the beginning of chapter 1. I will stretch out my hand. This is God speaking. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned their back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire Him. The rest of the chapter of chapter 1 basically is God saying, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to destroy you, Israel. I'm going to destroy you, Jerusalem. But chapter 2, as we've seen uh, in the other minor prophets, offers a glimmer of hope. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. There's hope here, folks. This is is hope. Now, even though you have brought my wrath and my punishment down upon you, here's some hope. So long as you humble yourself... So long as you obey Him and seek righteousness, perhaps He will spare you. And perhaps 
This is the teaching that began Josiah's path to turn to the Lord as a teenager, to begin to clean up Israel and their idolatry because God offered hope. So this verse wraps up the first section of Zephaniah. And if you're taking notes uh, and you want to write down this outline, uh, the first section that we just covered there uh, talks about the, uh, the, the judgment that's coming for Judah. It pictures Judah really as the whole world and that all the inhabitants will be wiped out. Then in chapter 2, judgment is coming for the surrounding nations. And in the first seven verses of chapter 3, they talk specifically about the judgment that is coming for Jerusalem. And then in verse 8, God declares the judgment coming for all the nations, the whole world. And we'll look at that in a second. But the final section of the book, the, the hope of the book, for those who humble themselves, is the hope for the humble. And we'll get to that towards the end of this lesson this morning. But first I want to go to point number four there, the section number four, the judgment that is coming for all nations. Let's look at uh, verse 8 of, of chapter 3, 8 through 9. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all of my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. God wants to make this very clear to Jerusalem, to Judah, to the surrounding nations, to the entire world. He's saying, I am king. God alone is king. God wants the world to know this, to to honor him and obey him. Anyone who rebels against God, who turns from him or does not inquire of him or seek him will be punished. The first couple of chapters are extremely negative and full of God's wrath and judgment and anger. And we have to start there. We have to start there. We can't neglect this truth. We should be overwhelmed with God's glory, His greatness, His His wrath and judgment. And we have to accept that. We have to understand it. We have to know that it is there, it is real, and it is waiting for those who don't obey. We need to understand that so that we can then be humble before God, so that we can come before Him in humility. Think of the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. You have two people praying in the temple with uh, two people with very different standings in terms of popularity and status within the Jewish culture. The Pharisee would be the one that the parents said, Hey, little Johnny, that's who you need to grow up to be like. Be like that guy. The guy who honors God and loves God. And then there's the tax collector. That's the one that the parents would point to and say, don't grow up to be like that guy. Don't don't be like him. The pridefulness of the Pharisee was what separated him from God in that story. The humility of the tax collector who stood there, eyes down, ashamed of his sin, beating his breast, Respecting the judgment and the wrath of God, he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself, talking about the Pharisee, will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector humbled himself before God because he understood and did not neglect God's wrath and and his punishment. And so he was repentant of his sinfulness. But the Pharisee boasted about all the things that he does. 
and that he's better, at least externally, than everyone else around him. But God says that those who disobey do not humble themselves before me. Judgment and wrath are coming for you because I am king. It's not about you. It's about me. God's a jealous God, remember? That's where the humility comes in. We have to come face to face with the biblical truth that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I have, you have, we all have. We have to accept that. And accepting that, knowing that truth, and knowing that God is full of jealousy at the sinful desires that we place above Him, that God hates sin and He hates wickedness and will bring down His judgment on those who have turned from Him, we should assume the same mindset as that tax collector. Have mercy on me, God. I am a sinner. You know, I hear a lot in, in denominational doctrine and, and the things that are taught in the, the, the feel-good churches that if you sin, they say, you know what, it's okay. God still loves you. Does God love us? Sure. Does He desire for us to be sinners? No. It's not okay to sin. It's not okay to feel okay about your sin. Sin should make us feel ashamed. When we sit uh, when we sit here on Sunday mornings or, or lie in bed on a Thursday evening, it doesn't matter where we are. And if we ever attempt to enter His presence and, and seek Him in prayer, we should be ashamed of our sin. We should humble ourselves and come before God and say, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. We should be repentant of the sin that is in our lives and we should seek forgiveness for those things. Because that's what God desires. He desires for you to be forgiven. He desires for us to be reconciled to Him. That's why He sent His Son. He desires to give us the opportunity to be forgiven if we will but humble ourselves and acknowledge that He is King, that He has the power and He has the ability to send His wrath upon us, but He doesn't desire to do that. But He will by no means clear the guilty Right? From Nahum from a few weeks ago. All throughout the Minor Prophets, we see judgment and wrath is coming. But we also see this ray of hope in the coming Messiah, in Jesus, the Redeemer that comes to reconcile those who would believe and call on His name. And that, that's what we see in verse 9 here. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples. Right? There's a plural there. Not the people of Israel or Judah, but peoples, referring to all the nations, to the entire world, because that's what he just mentioned. He just talked about uh, how my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour upon them my indignation. But I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. This is the ray of hope that is present throughout all of the minor prophets, all of the major prophets, that when Christ comes, He will transform the people, that He will forgive sin, and He will bring them into the kingdom of heaven. Not Israel, but a new Israel, a new Jerusalem. It's going to be a people of every nation, of every race, of every tribe, of every tongue, etc., People that used to curse God in their own language will now be praising Him with one speech. One pure speech. Now, he's not literally talking about our language. It's not the same language 
but the praise that comes from the heart, that's the same speech. It's a pure speech that comes from our heart. Turn over to James chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. James says, The tongue is a fire, of wor- a world of unrighteousness. The, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and setting on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. The same speech that we speak, the speech that God describes through Zephaniah, is a heart language. Let me explain. The Hebrew word used in Zephaniah for speech is the word for lips. And it derives from, from what I studied from the, uh, the idea, um, and this may be wrong and, and uh, Dave can correct me, but from what I understand, it derives from the word or the idea of termination, of, of stopping. The, the lip is a boundary of the body. When something crosses your lips... Whether in or out, it is crossing the boundary of your body. When you say something, it leaves your body. When you eat something, eating, it goes into your body. The lips are your barrier. Okay, So language is a barrier, right? If we go to a different country, we may not be able to understand what they're saying to us because there's a barrier in the way. But God says, I'm going to break down this barrier of language that people use. And as James says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. But God says, no, the language that I'm going to bring out will not be of the tongue, but it's going to be of the heart. It's going to be something that has no boundaries because it doesn't proceed from our lips. It's why Paul exhorts the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 19, and Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, to address one another in psalms and in hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Right? In Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, seeking or singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. This is why you can go to Ukraine or India or Ghana or Costa Rica and worship with the Lord's church and not understand the language they're speaking, but still be able to worship God in the same pure speech because all are or should be worshiping from the heart. Amen. So now knowing that this language is is something that's from the heart, look at what the speech is used for. He says, I will change the speech of the people's to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. God has, through Christ's sacrifice, purified our speech. He's purified our hearts. He's purified our soul so that whosoever should believe in Him can call upon His name, right? Whosoever should believe in Him shall have the opportunity to do this. And that's how we enter the kingdom, right? 
That's how we're added to the Lord's church, how we become children of God. Acts 22 verse 16 tells us that our baptism is the calling on of the name of the Lord. Our sins are washed away and we call upon His name to then live and serve Him. But it all begins with humility. It all comes back to that, to humble your heart, to recognize that you deserve judgment and you deserve punishment for our sins. But humbly come before God and say, have mercy on me. You know, I hear all the time people, well, I deserve a higher pay or I deserve a better wife or I, I'm not saying that, or, or I deserve a better car or I deserve a better house. You don't deserve anything in this world but death and punishment for the sin in your life. That's what we all deserve because we have disobeyed God, because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God says here in Zephaniah that He's going to destroy everything. He's going to wipe out the inhabitants of the, of the world, but I'm going to save a remnant, that salvation is possible. I'm going to purify their speech so they can call on my name, so that I can save them and they can serve me faithfully. Then in verse 10, From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Cush is Ethiopia. That's that's Ethiopia down in in Africa. Now I, I think this holds a double meaning. I think this is speaking to the ones who were dispersed, the Jews who, um, who were spread out over the different kingdoms that overthrew them. You know, that when they got overthrown, they were sent off to be slave laborers many times and to serve this new kingdom that had overthrown them. And so when that kingdom dissipated or another kingdom took over, they typically stayed there. And that was the dispersed. But, and God says, even to those in Africa, down in, in, into the, the Cush region, He says, I'm going to preserve a remnant that they're going to come back and they're going to worship me. They're going to be brought back into my kingdom, but also for all the nations of the world, Jews and Gentiles who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Remember what we talked about this morning with Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John chapter four at the well. God desires for worshipers. And as Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, it's not about a mountain. It's not about Jerusalem. Because there's going to come a time where that's all going to go away. It's going to be for those who will worship God in spirit and in truth. God is bringing those into His kingdom to be those worshipers. He's welcoming them in to be His people. You, me, all of us. That we might be His worshipers, worshiping Him in spirit and in truth in a purified Speech, verse 11. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. The first thing that we gather from this verse is that the remnant, the ones that that God will preserve, will be the ones who seek humility. They will not be the ones who are haughty, like the Pharisee that we talked about earlier, because they have no place in the kingdom of God. If you think that you deserve to be in the kingdom of God, if you think that you deserve forgiveness for your sins, you don't know the God of heaven. 
Because it is only by His grace and His forgiveness that He makes these things possible. He said, I will remove from your midst, God says there in verse 11. We don't deserve anything but death. We don't deserve anything but punishment and wrath from God for our sins. But, but, He desires for us to become humble and lowly, to obey Him and serve Him. Verse 12, But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. This is describing exactly what Christians should be. This is what Christ came to create and to deliver, to fulfill. It is His kingdom. A new Israel, a new Jerusalem that we now live in. A kingdom for the humble and the lowly. Those who will humble themselves like a child to obey His commands. To not neglect His word, to not neglect His teachings, but instead be united in one accord with pure speech. And... How does one become united to Christ? How does one become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death, In a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We unite ourselves to Christ in baptism. We unite ourselves to Christ, uh, or to the church rather. We are added to the church and united to the body through our baptism. In this we are all made pure in the eyes of God. Christ was our atoning sacrifice, the blood that that covers over our sin. That's what atoning means, to cover over. And our pure speech, our calling on the name of God through baptism, unites us to Christ and the body so that we can serve Him with one accord. For we now live in Christ's kingdom and we are His ambassadors. We are to be ones who are humble and lowly, bearing good fruit, not neglecting His words and His commands, but faithfully desiring to be filled with His Word. And let me mention too, to be filled with His Word, His Word, not the words of men, not the traditions or the teachings of men, but His Word, what we find in the book. If you're still in Zephaniah, flip back to chapter 1, verse 7. For the day of the Lord, this is the latter portion of verse 7. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. The sacrifice was prepared and offered, and his name was Jesus Christ. And those who have been consecrated, that is, made holy by that sacrifice, are God's guests to be with him as the world faces his judgment and wrath. Who among us today would rather be in the world facing that punishment when the day of judgment arrives? Not me. 
And I hope and pray that no one here desires that fate and is doing everything that they can to avoid it. If you're here this morning and you've not united yourself to Christ in baptism, don't wait. This is a decision that only you can make, not somebody else. No one else can make the decision for you to be baptized. It has to be a choice for you. You have to humble yourself. No one can humble you for you. That doesn't even make any sense. You have to humble yourself. You have to obey. Because this is for those who are willing to humble themselves and obey Christ's commands. Who, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but those who do not will be condemned. That's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 16, verse 16. And we read today of the wrath that awaits those who do not seek the Lord. The wrath that awaits those who do not inquire of Him. And we also saw what's waiting for those who have turned back from following God. If you're here this morning and you wish to be baptized for the remission of your sins, to unite yourself to Christ and become His adopted child, or if you've turned from following Him and desire to repent and seek refuge in Him once again, then now is the time and the opportunity that we have set forth for you to come forward to the front while we stand and sing.